passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. Probably the easiest thing I've ever done. The medication comes in the mail and it's very easy to use. I've been able to live my normal lifestyle and I've lost 20 pounds already and I've never felt better. It changed my life. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. everybody, J.J. Cooper, Kyle Glazer here, another Baseball America podcast. We are talking major leagues today. We've got a lot to discuss because a lot's already happened. Isn't it great? We're sitting here every day, turn on the TV, and there's just a cavalcade of baseball day after day after day. It's one of the great things about being a baseball fan. And Kyle, how much are you enjoying just being overwhelmed with how much baseball you're trying to consume every day? It's obviously a lot of fun, but there's definitely times where you realize you miss something because there's so much else happening and you pick something up two days late and you're like, oh man, I can't believe I missed that. But that's half the fun. You know, we were in full swing. Obviously the major leagues are underway. Every full season level of the minors are underway. Uh, college and high school seasons are really in the meat and uh, we're really starting to hear guys really, really start to move up draft boards as well. So kind of baseball at all levels right now is in full swing and it's, it's a lot of fun. MPB's rolling along. Roki Sasaki is uh, is dominating as well. Like you know, there's only like on a Friday, if you wanted, if you wanted to really try to keep up with everything, there'd only be about oh I don't know, 115 games to watch. You know that's easy to do. Like I mean, you know, you only need about 50 screens to keep up with all of it. But uh, but we do. We're going to cover a lot of different things that are happening in the major leagues on today's podcast. But we do want to start. We got we got kind of less than uh, you know enjoyable news if you're an A's fan to start with, which is obviously the news broke last week that the A's have indicated that they are fully focused on moving to Las Vegas, which is a an adjustment from their previous uh, statements, and in the process they also are as as Kyle you wrote about a column on this uh, you know at the end of last week, but they're also they're not just bad at the major league level, but they are 
headed towards being truly historically bad, which kind of leads to my first question to you, which is how bad we'll get to the Vegas part, but how bad could this Oakland team be? I mean, look, they are four and 18 to start the season. They have a negative 103 run differential. Just to put that in perspective, the next closest team, the next worst run differential as of this recording is the Rockies at negative 54. 103 to 54. They have nearly doubled the second worst run differential in Major League Baseball thus far. Look, this is a terrible team. We knew going in this was a terrible team. We did our preseason preview at Baseball America. I took care of all the West divisions, and we had to grade out all the players. And I realized you're putting a lot of 40s on guys, and a lot of them are really 30s. I mean, this is realistically a triple-A team in a lot of ways with a few major leaguers sprinkled in in terms of who the guys are in the lineup. As I wrote in my column, Last week, 24 hours before the A's announced they had reached that uh, binding agreement to uh, purchase land in Las Vegas, I mean, their three, four, five hitters were Aledmus Diaz, Brent Rooker, and Jace Peterson. If you really love Aledmus Diaz, and he's a nice player, he's a number nine hitter utility guy. Jace Peterson is more or less a career AAA player who comes up to the majors and, and does some things on occasion. Brent Rooker is a waiver claim who you're kind of just giving a shot to as, you know, a former top prospect who you just want to give playing time to. If those are your seven, eight, nine hitters, you're still kind of not in a great spot for that to be your three, four, five in your lineup. I mean, that's just, that's, that's just kind of speaks to the caliber of team they have put on the field this year. That, to just give a little perspective, Oakland last year went 60 and 102. They were terrible last yeah. year. They had a 200 and minus 202 run differential for the season last year over 162 games. We're still sitting here um, less than a month into the season and they're more than halfway there yeah. already. Like this is, and, and the frightening thing about it is, is that again, we know this team was not going to the playoffs before everything started, but if you ask the question, well, they can't be this bad. Like logically one would, I would say I would bet the house that they won't be this bad the rest of the year, simply by the fact that if you extrapolate it out, they would be right now, they are on pace to be the, 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 the first year Mets level or worse. Oh, and, they're up needs to be way worse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, the yeah. the 1962 Mets were uh, were actually ahead of where the A's are right now. Look, this is a truly, truly terrible team. You know, Ryan Noda, Rule Five picks, been batting second for them. I talked about the group of Triple A caliber players that are batting in the middle of their lineup. You know, Connor Capel, who's probably an up down guy, has been hitting six for them sometimes. I mean, that's just the lineup. You look at this pitching staff right now. You know, J.P. Sears pitched well the other day. He's their only starter with an ERA under five. I mean, you go through it, Kyle Muller, 7.23. Ken Waldachuk, 7.64. James Caprillion, 12.33. Shintaro Fujinami, 14.40. I mean, and yes, realistically, these guys won't have ERAs that bad over the course of the year. <laughs> yes. But I think it's very realistic. They all have ERAs in the fives, maybe even the oh, sixes. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Shintaro Fujinami... As many walks as strikeout shows you great stuff, but can't really put it together for multiple innings at a time. 
that's exactly who we knew him to be. I mean, he was kind of their quote unquote big offseason pitching addition in terms of free agency. He was demoted to the minors in Japan each of the last six years. That's their big addition. A guy who kept getting demoted to the minors in Japan. This is what we're talking about here. This is a, a truly, truly terrible team. And that is by design in order to make things as miserable as possible on and off the field in order to get a new stadium, whether it be in the Bay Area or Las Vegas. So obviously, I would say that having the worst possible team you can have does not particularly make it easier for you to get a stadium at your current locale. There is a an ongoing fan boycott uh, because in, in Oakland because they're basically saying, we're A's fans, but we don't want to support this ownership group. And especially then, that was before it was announced what we found out last week, which is that there's now, it is a binding agreement to purchase land in Las Vegas. That would be the site of a stadium. Now, I think it's important, Kyle, to kind of, to lay out to people, that's a step, right? but that's only... Do not basically start purchasing your Las Vegas A's season tickets yet because there are a lot of ways that this still could go wrong, right? Right. You still have a lot of legal, financial, legislative hurdles that have to be crossed. Um, At this point, again, what the A's have done is taken the first concrete step to relocating to Las Vegas. And that is significant in the sense that for years and years and years, It has been speculation, rumors, assumptions. And to be clear, the Oakland Coliseum does need to be replaced. And I think we do have to be fair and say the A's at various points have tried to negotiate. We've seen potential deals come up and, you know, conversation or in some cases gotten a little further than that in San Jose, in Fremont, Howard Terminal, Laney College, all different, you know, areas. Jack London Square has come up. So there have been attempts over the last 15, 20 some odd years to try and find a solution in the East Bay. It has not happened. Who's to blame? It kind of depends on your perspective. Um, But clearly there's a lot of animosity toward owner John Fisher and and the A's ownership group and and some of it deservedly so. In terms of now this move to Las Vegas, again, this is the first concrete step, but there's so, so, so many steps that have to be taken before they physically move to Los Angeles. The financing details still have to be figured out. The tax districts, Who's going to bear the construction costs? How much public money is going to the A's? These are really significant things that still right now have just been talked about. And getting them actually ironed out pen to paper is not easy. These are often very slow, protracted types of negotiations. So I think to sit here and say, oh, it's done. The A's are moving to Las Vegas. It's really, really, really premature. At the same time, we do have to note this is a concrete step that was taken and the first one after, again, what had previously been years of rumors and, and assumptions. Right. But there's still a biggie, which is, is uh, you know, again, just being straightforward about it. A lot of this comes down to it's not – if this was a case where the A's were saying, we will build the stadium and this will be private money to build the stadium, then you would be able to say, well, they've got the land, so this is the, if that was the, the, case, the hard part is done. If that yes. was the case, it would be in Oakland. I mean, that's that's the biggest but, thing here. So yeah. the, the way California laws work, it's very, very difficult to get public money for projects like this. Keep in mind, the Rams and Chargers new stadium in L.A. was built with private money. Uh, Chase Arena, Chase Center in uh, 
in uh, San Francisco, the Warriors new arena that was built with private money. Even Oracle Park, Giants Stadium, was built with private money. If the A's were putting up private money to build the stadium in its entirety, this would have been solved years ago. Again, that is not what they're doing. And reportedly, they're looking for $500 million in public money from the state of Nevada. And again, on the one hand, the state of Nevada did just give the Raiders $750 million in order to move to Las Vegas and help finance their stadium there. But it's not a given. There's still a lot of things that have to be figured out. Again, what the financing mechanisms are, the tax districts, you know, conversations with the legislators, uh, uh, Las Vegas Review Journal and others have reported. They have hired a team of lobbyists uh, to deal with uh, the various legislators in Carson, try and get them on board. So, again, there are so many details that have to be worked out and finalized before they can even begin to move. But again, this is a first step and it's not insignificant. The other thing that is interesting about this is, and we say this is people who also cover the minors, there's a new stadium, in a relatively new stadium still in Las Vegas because there was a long, long, long effort to get a new stadium built for the AAA Las Vegas Aviators. And right. Kyle, you've been there. It's, it's, a new, it's a new park. It's one of the best parks in the minor leagues. However, what it is not and what it really can't be is converted. I, I don't even know if that's really possible anymore. Like we haven't seen an example of this in a long time. We are basically two stadium generations since this used to be normal. You had Tex the Texas Rangers did this. You had the, you know, you had the Montreal Expos did this. You had a number of teams, the Minnesota Twins, I believe, that where you had a number of teams that would start with a stadium and build it out and then eventually move on. Yeah. But we haven't seen that in two generations of stadiums. You've been there. It's a beautiful minor league park yeah. that in no way is a major league park, right? Correct. Again, I was out there last year. And again, they did a wonderful job. It's a beautiful stadium, beautiful facilities, um, player facilities, the press area, the, the, the what's available to the fans. Um, it, it really is a great park, but it's a great AAA park. So, so first and foremost, it's not on the strip. It's about 25 to 30 minutes away, depending on traffic. And traffic can get pretty bad out there. So it's not on the strip. It's out a little bit. And the way it's constructed, there's not really room to build more seating. Um, just, again, where it kind of backs up against, how it's kind of fit into the square block of the city, if you will. It's not like, oh, yeah, we have a ton of room. We can add some temporary seating to add another 10,000 fans in here. It's not really configured that way. I'm sure and uh, you know, maybe a city planner or an engineer might be able to figure out a way. But just visually looking at it, it's not like there's an obvious solution there. So realistically, so as we know, the A's have a lease with the Coliseum through 2024. They have said that they do, would not be able to move into their new Las Vegas ballpark until the start of the 2027 season. And that's best case scenario. We always see there's delays, cost overruns. There's been a lot of times teams have said, oh, we're going to be here by X year. And they're not. I think back to the Potters and Petco Park. That was supposed to be open in 2002. It didn't open until 2004. The Rams and Chargers Stadium here in LA was supposed to be open a year earlier than it was, but heavy rains delayed it by a year. I mean, there's just all sorts of things that can cause delays. So realistically, best case scenario where do the A's play 2025, 2026? They could stay in Oakland, get an extension. We saw the call and do that with the Raiders, but that was just ugly. It wasn't good for anybody. 
I mean, if the A's move to Las Vegas and play in the AAA stadium for two years, it's gonna pretty much gonna be as is. Maybe they can add a little bit here and there, but you can't just magically say, oh, we can turn this into a 20,000 seat stadium. Right now, the Las Vegas ballpark, it's 8,196 seats. You can sell some standing room only and maybe get 10,000 in there, but that's really the max. I think what's been interesting to me, JJ, you talk about two generations ago, it wasn't uncommon for maybe teams to do this and build out AAA stadiums. This hasn't been the case in baseball, but in professional sports in general, we've seen a general acceptance of moving into smaller capacity spaces yes. and upcharging the heck out of it. I talk about the Chargers. They went from Qualcomm Stadium, which seated 65,000 plus. They moved into the StubHub Center in Carson, which is 27,000. Again, they expanded it to fit 30,000 in there, but that was really small for a football stadium. And they marketed it as, hey, you're closer to the action than ever before. We're going to jack up the prices. The Arizona Coyotes, they moved into a 5,000-seat on the Arizona State College campus. And that leads to the follow-up question, which is someone I've gotten a couple of people ask me. The uh, Nevada Independent reported, and others have followed up in reporting, that, that the plan is to have the big league team and the AAA team coexist in the Las Vegas market. And there are plenty of examples of that i would say that most prominently like we just had the saint paul saints who've right. been famously eight miles from you know the the twins for 20 some years but they became the twins AAA affiliate we have the gwinnett braves and the atlanta braves we have you know you have sugar like you have there's a multitude of examples of this yeah. that said it is fascinating to see the plan to do that in Vegas. Well, for one, as Kyle just talked about, you have the situation that a nightmare scenario is that you have a big league team and a triple A team sharing the same park, which is a disaster as far as selling tickets, because you want, you, you kind of need the team to go away to then have, uh, ticket scarcity. I know that they're two different things, major league tickets, triple A tickets, but that means that that park is going to be used pretty much day in, day out during the season. So that's one. Two, it is a small market to be a team to have both a major league and a triple A club in the same market. And I say that mainly because if you look at most of the examples that do this, and especially the ones that do this, there are more examples if you say, okay, we're going to have an A-ball team. An A-ball team and a triple-A team are in very different stratas, right? Like you can have an A-ball team that draws 2,500 a night and it's like, okay, we're okay. You're looking at ticket prices are very different. You're looking at a lot of differences where you can have that kind of segmentation in the market where you say, we've got an A-ball team, we've got a triple-A. I mean, I've got a big league. When you talk about AAA in majors, there is still a segmentation. Obviously, it is cheaper to go to the AAA game than it is to go to the major league game. That's true. But there is some overlap as far as your sponsors and who you're looking to get for sponsorship. But the key thing here is, is with Vegas is most of the places that do this, you're talking about you have like if you take even like Minneapolis, St. Paul, they're different cities. <laughs> They're, they're close, but they're different cities. Or if you talk about the Gwinnett Braves, which, by the way, the Gwinnett Braves are almost without fail 
one of the poor drawing teams in AAA. You mean but the Gwinnett Stripers? The Gwinnett Stripers, yes. But the Gwinnett Stripers are one of the poor drawing teams in AAA. But to get from the Gwinnett ballpark to the ballpark in Cobb County at rush hour is basically you might as well be on two separate sides of the of the Pacific Ocean. You know, like it's not an easy. Those are they are geographically or at least commuter wise very separated. Vegas doesn't have this massive suburbs where you're like, oh, well, the team will be in this suburb far out here. It's really Vegas. And then that's kind of Vegas, right, Kyle? I mean, there are suburbs we're seeing grow. Henderson's one. Um, Summerlin, which is where the Las Vegas ballpark technically is, it, it is growing. So there, there are suburbs of Vegas, but it is a different dynamic. I was just in Minnesota last year. Uh, it was funny. I was in St. Paul for a wedding and was doing a lot of driving back and forth between Minneapolis and St. Paul and, and saw both ballparks. And yes, they are close together geographically, but you really do have two kind of separate identities, two separate cities across the river. You have downtown St. Paul, which is kind of its own self-sustaining city. You have downtown Minneapolis, which is definitely kind of its own self-sustaining city. That's not the dynamic between Las Vegas and where the Las Vegas ballpark is in Summerland. It's kind of all conjoined. It, it's not that dynamic. And again, I can't speak to Atlanta and Gwinnett, but you talked about the traffic. And again, there is traffic from the strip to Summerland, but it's not terrible. It's okay. The 25 minute drive took me 40. I, I think overall, the idea that having both teams in the same market at the same time is sustainable. I, I find that a hard sell. Um, again, I will say this, Las Vegas has surprised both me and, and a lot of people with how rapidly it has supported pro sports franchises. We saw the Vegas Knights, uh, excuse me, the Vegas Golden Knights come in. As a hockey fan and someone who knows Vegas and knows the West, I was skeptical, and they've been a smashing success. So I do think we have to keep that in mind that Vegas has surprised us a little bit with just how much they've supported local sports teams, especially given how transitory a lot of their uh, population is. So I, I think, I don't want to say it's impossible, but from the outside looking in, having spent a lot of time in Vegas just as a resident of the West, but also professionally as a baseball writer for us, I definitely am skeptical that it would be an arrangement that would end up working well for either side. And the other thing to know with this, like when we talk about Minneapolis, St. Paul, there are 1.4 million more people <laughs> in that, in that market than there are in the Vegas, the Vegas market. Not that it's not like, Oh, when you say that, does it in any way, this isn't something where you look at it and say, how are they getting a major league team there? It doesn't make any sense. It is a market, but it is a market in the Pittsburgh size. I think that there is obviously, obviously gambling revenue. That's a key part of this. They talk about tourism, tourism revenue, which will make it easier to build this and potentially fund it because you can always make it that, Oh, it's not the taxpayers here. We're going to use tourism taxes, and hotel like taxes, that. always hotel taxes. <laughs> yes. But People, I, again, I as a general rule, the, the likelihood that you're going to see this massive influx of people coming to Vegas because they want to watch an A's game, <laughs> that's, again, they're going to have tourism still in Vegas because it's Vegas. But I, it, the thing that just strikes me is, is it's long-term, I do think that it could be detrimental for the AAA team, which again, if you're the, if you're John Fisher in the Oakland A's, 
you don't really care that <laughs> much. You talk, everything that they talked about is about how it's great that if you need to call up a player, he could be over there. You know, he could have an afternoon game and be over there in time for the night game. And, and, and all that's true. But there is some skepticism on my part when you say, can you have a successful major league team and triple A team in Vegas? You can do it, but can you succeed doing it? I think really for me, the question is 2025 and 2026. I mean, having both of them share the same park and having the A's play home games when the aviators are on the road and vice versa, that just sounds like a recipe for a disaster. I don't know how the field's going to withstand that having essentially 162 home games per year. I guess AAA plays some fewer games, but 150 plus home games per year. That's a lot. And again, just the way the stadium's situated it's not like there's a ton of room for expansion. I also think it's important to note too. So Las Vegas, as we know, is in the Pacific coast league, which is very, very hitter friendly. Las Vegas is a place that is a launching pad offensively. Having been to Coors field and and having spent time at the Las Vegas ballpark, the elevation is not as high, but you have a lot of the same factors, the same elements. It's a much smaller field than Coors field is. Coors field is pretty expansive in the outfield gaps. The ball just carried over them. Las Vegas, if you put major leaguers in there with how strong they are, you might see a lot of like 15 to 14, 16 to 13 type games like we see in the Pacific Coast League. I mean, again, you see AAA players in there, some of them who aren't physically developed yet, just hitting balls 400 feet that they're not even barreling. Maybe not 400 feet, 350 feet they're not even barreling. You see guys who are you know the older quad A types, Matt Davidson, who are you know, strong as heck, have power. I mean, they're hitting balls gargantuan moonshots. I'm just trying to imagine, again, Shohei Otani might not be with the Angels there, but you talk about, oh, let's put Mike Trout, Shohei Otani, Julio Rodriguez, you know, uh, all you know, Jordan Alvarez in this, this place. I mean, balls are just going to fly. It's going to be insane. Um, it's not a very physically large park. Again, the way they kind of had to situate it in the city block they did. I, I don't know if putting a major league team there for two years would be great for baseball. We talk about all the challenges of course field and the quote unquote, you know, ridiculousness of that Vegas would be even worse. Cause it's, it's a smaller field with a lot of the same issues. <laughs> that's kind of the perfect way to end this part of the segment, which is to me, the other thing about this is that I do think it's worth noting is we've actually seen MLB owners who have come out and effect effectively complained about what, uh, what Seidler's doing in with San Diego and complained <laughs> about the fact that the Padres are spending a lot of money and are horror of all horror trying to compete and win. And by the way, by doing so, have San Diego fans selling out the ballpark day after day, excited about baseball, all that. It is notable that while if you ask me to find examples of that, I can find multiple examples. I do think it's it's an indictment of the owners in that Oakland is 4-18 and 18 with a payroll that basically will be paid by their revenue sharing, and then they'll still be able to put money away like before they ever sell a ticket, and is going to, by the way, drag down the overall average attendance of the major leagues this year because not only at home are they drawing nothing, and again, I'm not faulting the fans for that, they're being scorned, but also when they go on the road, it is 
absolutely. I know that you mainly pay to go to see your team, but if you're picking games to go to, no one's like, oh, cool. The A's are in town. Got to make sure I see them. This is actually detrimental for baseball. And, and there is a silence about it. You have not heard one owner come out publicly and say that what is happening in Oakland is a blot on baseball. Whereas you do have owners who have said, I don't agree with what's going on in San Diego. Which again says all you need to know about the priorities of the vast majority vast majority of owners in Major League Baseball. That a team spending and trying to win and filling their ballpark every night, but because it's above what their market size is. And to be clear, people citing San Diego's market size keep citing DMA, which is media market size, which is a different thing than market size, but that's a side rant. And then staying silent about a team that is making no attempt to compete whatsoever is actively turning away fans with their actions and actively trying to repel them, as I laid out in my column, um, letting the stadium just fall into complete and utter disrepair, ignoring basic fixes that they could do to just make it a little more, you know, a positive experience for anyone, media, fans, players, coaches, just saying, nope, we're not going to do it. And that includes leaving a possum in the press box for a year plus, letting bathroom fixtures rust. I mean, it's they have chosen to do this. Oakland's ownership has chosen to strip the team down to make it as unwatchable as possible. They have chosen to let the stadium fall into the state of disrepair it has. And they have chosen during this time to double ticket prices, nearly double them in most cases, to repel fans because they know as well as anyone a rational economic consumer is not going to pay double for a massively inferior product and these were all strategic decisions made by oakland's ownership and the fact that major league baseball and other owners haven't said a word about it while chastising again peter seidler and the potters for spending money to win baseball games i mean i can tell you right now at petco park they are printing money it is amazing how much revenue they are taking in and they're spending a lot too. So, you know, we'll see what it ends up being in terms of uh, profit loss, but they are doing extraordinarily well in a market that was hungry for a successful professional sports franchise, just as Oakland is. Oakland is right now a single sports team city as San Diego is. And you have two very, very different approaches. And it, it is pretty damning that you have owners chastising the team that's trying to win and filling the seats rather than the one that's making no attempt to win and actively trying to repel things. That's a perfect place. We're going to jump in and look a little bit more at the Padres, but we'll do so right after this quick break. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't a search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. That's why I use Indeed for our hiring at Baseball America. It allows me to do everything on one website. I get quality candidates. I can schedule them. I can interview them. I can screen them. I can send messages to them all within Indeed. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. 
Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And we're back. So... Kyle, speaking of those Padres, they, as we record this, they are 12 and 12, but they are also only a half game out in the West. They are fortunate, I would say, so far that no one is running away with the uh, the West. The Diamondbacks have looked sprightly. The D-backs look like they are a, a team that, that has made a step forward. The Dodgers are the Dodgers at the rest of the division. I don't think we need to talk about right now as far as challenging, but the, the important thing, obviously that happened for San Diego is they have, they, they have back Fernando Tatis jr, which does obviously make a difference, but uh, what does his return mean for San Diego? And what does you think it means over the course of the rest of the season? Look, when healthy, Fernando Tatis Jr. has been one of the best players in Major League Baseball. Uh, it's been a long layoff before this. He hadn't played a Major League game in 18 months. You have to go back to the end of the 2021 season. And it was good to see him heat up at the end of spring training. We saw him really take off at AAA El Paso. Obviously, the Major Leagues, it's it's different. Speed of the game, quality of pitching he's facing. There's going to be an adjustment period, but... I think what's encouraging is he's moving well in right field um, after two wrist surgeries and a shoulder injury, a shoulder surgery and uh, not playing for 18 months. I mean, three surgeries in 18 months without playing. You don't really know what a guy's going to come and look like physically when he gets back. But so far, he's moved well out there. Uh, he had his first home run the other night. Again, it, it's going to take some time. But this Padres offense on the whole has gotten off to a slow start. And, and again, Manny Machado is not going to hit 221 the entire year, excuse me, 220 the whole year. Um, you know, Juan Soto, he's had some struggles since coming over, but he's also not going to hit 198 the whole year. A lot of guys, you know, are good players have not gotten off to good starts. They've been treading water as is once those guys get going. And then you add Fernando Tatis Jr. into the mix, presumably as he gets his feet under him and three weeks to a month from now really starts finding his rhythm the Padres will be in position to take off. So I, I think while obviously a 12 and 12 start is not what Padres fans or, or the rest of baseball maybe thought would happen or dreamed would happen. The fact that they're doing okay, they've had a very difficult schedule early, six games against the Braves, they've played the Brewers, they've played the Mets. Um, they've treaded water without their best players really swing the bat well offensively or in some cases not being there. And without Joe Musgrove, he just came back. Hugh Darvish was not really fully built up out of the WBC. Now he's rounding in a year though. He left his most recent start with cramps, but he should be okay. I actually think the Padres are in a good position here to really take off once we get into May and June. They, they treaded water. I think Tatis, we know what impact he can have. Give him a few weeks, but I think with about a month or so under him, we'll really start to see him and the rest of this team take off. So, okay, does that mean you think right now, if you if you had to handicap the West? Yeah. I. The safe bet is always to say the Dodgers, because if you say the Dodgers, you're almost always right. Like if you say, I mean, we are on a streak here of, of epic proportions, but who do you think wins the West? 
So before the season, I picked the Dodgers and, and I stick with it. And, and the reason is right now you look at the Padres, their offense has not been performing well. You feel okay that that's going to get better. I believe they're hitting 216 as a team when I last checked. Um, that's not going to be the case the whole season. What is a little bit of a concern is this pitching staff. It does not have much depth at all in starting rotation. And we've seen some guys step up and, and deliver some good outings. Ryan Weathers came up and did well. Seth Lugo has thrown some nice innings as a starter, which is always a pleasant surprise and something you need. But realistically, over the course of the season, there's not a lot of starting depth here. And the bullpen's been leaky at times, especially in some of the middle innings. So I feel like you say, okay, this offense is going to get better. This pitching staff, their ERA is is well over four. Uh, they're in the bottom half of the major leagues right now. And I, I don't know if you can confidently say, oh, it's going to get massively better, maybe a little bit better. But I think this could be a mid-tier pitching staff when we look over the course of a full season with the lack of depth it has. Whereas the Dodgers, they've had some injuries early to their starting staff. They've already had to reach down and, and find some guys. But they still have some really good young players they can pull up from AAA. They still have the pitching depth, really uh, rotation and bullpen-wise potentially, that could help them stay afloat over the course of 162. Now, the bullpen has some questions too, to be sure, but I think you feel better about the Dodgers pitching staff holding up over 162 than the Padres and just being able to pull up some more depth. So I do give them a little edge, but again, the Dodgers are 12-11, and 11, the Padres are 12-12. and 12. I expect both of these teams to take off shortly. Um, I don't think we're going to see these two teams hover around 500 for the year. That's for sure. So it is going to be fascinating to watch that. The flip side of, we talked about in the West, no one has run away with it so far. We can't say that in the AL East. The AL East <laughs> so far has been, I, I tweeted about this today. It, it is fascinating to me that someone even added to the tweet with a really good tweet, pointed out that if you line up as we record this on Monday afternoon, if you line up the AL East and the AL Central, yeah. you are one twins loss away from being able just to leave them there and it is in complete order because the worst team in the AL East as we record this is the 12 and 11 Boston Red Sox. Yeah. The best team in the AL Central and the only team above 500 are the 12 and 10 Minnesota Twins. But leading that East are the 19 and three. It's hard to believe to say that the 19 and three Tampa Bay Rays. And the thing that stands out about this is they're 19 and three. The question we all had coming into the year. And I think it was a legitimate question after last year was, yeah, the pitching staff looks really good, even with the injuries and all that but are they going to have enough offense? Are they going to have enough power? Because this team had with the, with the injury to Brandon Lau with Mike Zanino, the injuries to Mike Zanino last year, their power output basically disappeared. And here we are, Kyle, I feel like we have an answer to that question, even though we're sitting here and it's still April 24th. As I ask you this question. Yeah, look, the Rays are doing everything offensively. They lead the majors with 48 homers. They lead the majors and run score. They're second in hits. Again, are they going to do this over the course of a full season? Probably not. We know some of these guys are, are going to come down a little bit. But 
I think you are seeing some encouraging things, right? Randy Rosarena was a superstar of superstars in the World Baseball Classic. He's carried that over into the regular season. A healthy Wander Franco is is a great, great asset to have as a hitter, especially. And if he can stay healthy over the full season, again, he's off to a really good start. You know, Josh Lowe's interesting. You and I had talked about him a lot coming up as a prospect. A lot of tools, a lot of questions whether or not he'd hit. And before the year for my annual piece, talking to evaluators about who looked good in spring training, Josh Lowe got highlighted as a guy like, hey, this could be a guy who has a breakout year. I mean, so far, yeah, he's hitting 345, 396, 91. Again, he won't do that over a full year. But we're starting to see some of these young position players for the Rays really start to deliver. And JJ, you've done this race system for years. They were our number one farm system. And so on the one hand, you say, oh, you take an 86-win team, add what was the number one farm system a few years ago, now starting to matriculate to the majors and get settled. On the one hand, maybe it shouldn't be a surprise they're playing so well. On the other hand, so much of their success was on the pitching side. You know, aside from Brandon Lau, they didn't have a ton of successes in terms of players they brought up from their farm system. They acquired a Rosarina in a trade, but he was still technically a prospect for them, but we're seeing Franco, we're seeing Lowe. They're starting to get some production from their homegrown young position players. And I think that's been the most exciting development. And I want to say that's why they are where they are. There are a lot of reasons why they are where they are. But I think that's one thing you look at and say, okay, what is sustainable? What is something you get really excited about? To me, that's the number one thing. What about you? I, I think it's also worth noting, like I think you got to throw Taylor Walls in that as well. Like Taylor Walls is the guy who there was no question about his glove, but the question about his bat well, again, say this small sample size, he won't keep this up, but 333, 440, 667 so far is a far cry from his 172, 268, 285 line last year. And the other part of this is, is Taj Bradley has come up and made two really good starts. It looks like I would expect him to be in the rotation the, mul- the majority of this year. He should be. He's ready. But... But the other part of it is, is that they still have it AAA. Cal Manzardo's hitting the cover off the ball at AAA Durham. And if you told me, now, they don't need him right now because Yandy Diaz and Harold Ramirez and all are really hitting. But if you ask me the question, do they have guys who could potentially help this team at some point later this year offensively to provide an additional boost. Well, yeah, like they, they do have a common started. They do have an Aselvis Basabe. They do have a Jonathan Aranda. They've got guys, Curtis Mead hasn't had a great start yet, but again, that's another guy. Like they've got guys who either can help them or provide the trade chips to, again, if they continue, they've already lost, they've already had significant injuries on the pitching staff and they're deep enough right now to handle them. Losing Jeffrey Springs for the last, for the year is obviously a, a big blow. You would expect that at some point they're going to get Tyler Glasnow back. You know, they're, they're going to get guys, they're going to get reinforcements. But whatever they need to do, they're going to have the ammunition to make trades as well. But at I, the same I, I, time... I, like yeah, oh, I, was, I, was, I didn't follow up. You know, one of the things I had talked about with Jeff Ponce a few weeks ago when we did a kind of check-in podcast, at that point, the Rays were 6-0. and I saw the A's on the schedule said they'll be 9-0. and And then the Red Sox, I said they'd be 12-1. and I didn't predict 13-0. I said, look, they'll be 12-1 and and looking like world beaters. We have to keep in mind who they're playing. And, and there's truth to that. 
on the one hand, it's incredibly difficult to win 13 straight, no matter who you're playing. You have to give them credit for that. But you also do have to take the caliber of competition into account, especially we talk about some of these offensive numbers. A lot of it was done against some pretty horrible pitching staffs. However, we have seen them continue to play well. They dropped two to the Blue Jays, bounced back with a win. Again, dropped one to the Reds, came back and won a couple. They just swept the White Sox, who aren't terrible. I think we're going to see the real, real, real test for the Rays. And again, I can't say this enough. Winning 19 of 22 games at any point is an incredible accomplishment. If they faced the A's in the first 22 games of the season, it would still be impressive. <laughs> right. This isn't college basketball where you know some wins are worth more than others, quad one versus quad two. Like They all count the same. I do think it's going to be more of a test really starting today. They face the Astros three-game set. They go to the White Sox. Really, things kick up in May. Three games against the Pirates, which we didn't think would be tough, but as we'll talk about, might actually be tough. But then they go Yankees, Orioles, Yankees, Mets, Brewers, Blue Jays, Dodgers, Cubs who are playing well. May is going to be the grinder for them. And I think that's where we're going to see, okay, what is the real talent level of this race team? Because, again, they're not going to keep up their current pace over the full 162. But is it, do they start playing 500 ball against these clubs, but because they got such a hot start, they're still going to be in playoff position the whole year? Or do they keep playing at a, you know, well above average clip and show, yeah, we are a team that can hang with the best of the best in Major League Baseball, and we belong in that top tier. I think May is going to be a really fascinating month to watch the Rays and see, okay, here's how we can fare. Here's how we fare against the best of the best day in and day out. That's going to be the real test for them. And I, I... I'm done doubting the Rays. I keep doubting them and I keep being wrong. So I'm just going to sit back and watch and take it as it comes. The thing I would say with that is, is that, and success over the, I agree. You look at their schedule, it is flipping. It is flipping from one side of the coin to the other. Yeah. But if they win at a 52, 53% clip from now to the end of May, that's great. That's like, yeah, because then, if they do that against the schedule they have coming up, then you can just already you, you you can't pen you can't write in pen that they're in the playoffs in June, too little too early. But you can start that pencil. You can start re- going back over the lines again, circling them and saying, "Yeah, they're almost assuredly going to," because that's what you're talking about. That's that's really hard to do. And we've seen two teams really just almost get into the playoffs off one spectacular month. I think back to the 2005 Padres who went 22 and six in May one year, they were a below 500 team the rest of the year, but that great month, they won the division. They were 82 and 80, but they won the division. Um, (laughs) So, I mean, again, something where we we have seen sometimes that one great month, no matter when it comes can make a big difference over the course of the season. So again, I, I think we've reached a point where you have to give them their due respect again. Winning 19 of 22 is impressive no matter who you do it against. But I think that can also be true at the same time as, okay, things are about to get a lot tougher. This will give us a better gauge of where they really stand in the Major League Baseball pecking order, May at least. I Talk about perfect segue. You talk about a great month and what it can do. Okay, that leads us to we've got to talk about the 16 and 7 Pittsburgh Pirates. And when we say great month, I'm a Steelers fan, so I have a lot of people I follow who are Steelers slash Pirates fans, so I can get a little bit of a sense of the joy that there is in Pittsburgh right now among fans who are like, this is the first month that they've had of 
giddy euphoria in a in a when I say a very long time. So they've won 16, they're 16 and 7 as we record this on the 24th, right? They've won 15 games so far in April, one game in in March. Assuming that they so let's just start with the 16 wins, right? When you say when's the last time that Pittsburgh had a month where they won 16 games? You got to go back to 2018. There hasn't been a month like this at any month of the season since 2018. And then if you said, okay, it's it's April 24th. Can they win two more games this month to get them to 17 wins in a month? Well, then if you do that, you mean you've got to go they have 16, 17. No, they, 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 are 15 wins in April right now. Oh, oh because they won one problem. game in oh, March. Problem. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that the last time that they had a 17 win month was 2015 when they won 98 games. Now that leads to the logical question to ask you, Kyle, which is to the point you just made, the great thing about it is if they go 17 and 10 this month, if they're sitting, whatever it is like that, you know, again, they win 18 games this month, they win whatever. That's already in the books. That's already written down. That's already, you can't take those away from them. But the big question is, is this a team having a wonderful fluky month? Or is this the sign that this Pirates team has really turned a corner? I think, again, you have to give them credit for what they've done. And there certainly have been some really good early season performances. I do expect them to come back to earth a little bit. Again, Connor Joe, a nice player and a good story. He's not going to hit. He's not going to have an OPS near 1,100 the course of the year. Jack Sawinski, same deal. Really good left-handed power bat. Not going to have an OPS over 1,000 over the course of the year. I will say I think what's been encouraging is we've seen some of their young pitchers really take a step forward. Again, Mitch Keller quietly did some good things last year and, and again, is off to a nice start again this year. Johan Oviedo, they might have unlocked something there. He was a promising prospect with the Cardinals for a while, just couldn't quite get the consistency down. He's off to a nice start, and the walks are down, which is big for him. So I, I think you combine, hey, they have some good young starters. They've helped Vince Velasquez find the fountain of youth, which is amazing because he's been looking done for a while. You add in one of the best closers in baseball, David Bednar, I think is really, really underrated. And they have some good position players, right? We know Brian Reynolds is a really good player. Andrew McCutcheon looks great back in Pittsburgh. Again, you know, guys like Swinsky are, are, are solid contributors. I think the Pirates have a chance to be respectable. I don't think they're going to win the NL Central. They're in first place right now. I firmly expect the Cardinals to catch up to them. They're off to a slow start. But I, I think both things can be true, that the Pirates probably will fall off but that this could represent a step forward. This could represent that first winning season coming out of this rebuild that they can then use as a springboard into 2024. So there are some positives to be taken here. And I think most encouraging for me, because we've talked a lot about the Pirates and their inability to maybe get the most from guys they've been charged with developing over the years, you're starting to see some positive trends. Again, Mitch Keller's slowly coming around a little bit. Oviedo could be one of those, hey, nice, low-cost, young pickups, and, and we found something. We made him better. I mean, 
when was the last time the Pirates picked up a young guy and made him better? Normally it goes the other way around. They leave the Pirates and become better. So I think reversing that and showing they can do that, that that's where they are in the organization now, that's positive and something to feel good about moving forward. It is, and it's also good, again, we just, it's good. It's a beautiful ballpark. It is a market where you have fans who truly hunger for success. And so it's great to see it. Speaking of that, we're going to wrap this up quickly. We've been going a long time, but there are two other teams. I think that is notable like that. Speaking of hunger for success, you look at Baltimore, you look at Texas. I'll frame it to you this way, Kyle, the Orioles 14 to seven, the Rangers, the 14 to seven, when the dust clears and we're talking at the end of September or at the start of October, which one of these two teams do you think are we going to be talking about as, yep, we saw it starting in April. This was a team that was going to just, you know, a playoff team that was going to contend all year. Is it both? Is it one or is it neither? I'm probably in the minority here, but to me, it's the Rangers. I picked them as my turnaround team this year that I thought had a chance to surprise some people. I mean, you look at this starting pitching staff, Jacob deGrom's injury scare looks like it's nothing. That's a pretty darn good pitching staff. You have Jacob deGrom, you have Martin Perez, you have John Gray, you know, Martin, uh, Nate Uvalde's off to a slow start, but we know he's a good pitcher. Andrew Heaney's perfectly fine as your number five. They've had a sneaky good bullpen for a few years now with Brock Burke, Jonathan Hernandez. They added Will Smith, Jose LeClaire is still there. And really, you're starting to see the guys they brought in really turning things around. I picked Marcus Semien as my, you know, kind of bounce back player. He's off to a great start. Corey Seager got hurt. He was hitting well early. We've seen Josh Young come up and do some good things. Jonah Heim should have been an all-star last year. He's repeating it this year. And then you add in Bruce Bochy, who's one of the best managers in baseball. I think Chris Young has done a really good job here. And look, part of it was the Rangers were banking on a farm system with the previous regime that they thought was good, but really wasn't that good. They grossly overestimated those guys' abilities. Chris Young went in, realized it, and said, okay, we have to bring in other players. The people we need to win in the major leagues are not in our farm system. Give credit to ownership. They spent, give credit to Chris Young. He built a really good roster. I, I do think this is sustainable. And I think the Rangers, especially look at the West right now in the American League, the Angels' bullpen is horrible again, which was going to be an Achilles heel. The Mariners did not hit well offensively last year. They're off to a slow start again this year. You know, the Astros will turn it around. They'll be there. But if you told me at the end of the year the Rangers are in second place and they snagged a wild card spot, it wouldn't shock me. I think the Orioles, they still don't have the starting pitching where you feel great about it over the course of a long season. And they're also in a much tougher division with the Rays, with the Yankees, with the Blue Jays. Obviously, the schedule is now balanced, but but I do think it's going to be tough for them to leapfrog, you know, two of those teams over the course of 162 games for playoff position out of the division. How about well, you? Where I, are you I at? Do, who, who are you taking? I, I don't disagree with you on Texas, and I think Texas's path is easier. I think the answer could be yes on both of these, though. Like, and I say that like there are now obviously more wild card spots than there used to be, and that's the key thing. I don't think that especially with, as we just said, the 19 and three Tampa Bay Rays, we're not (laughs) going to see them catch them. But if you told me that this Baltimore team with the balance schedule and all that, with the fact that they should get a steady form of reinforcements, that triple a Norfolk team is crazy good. And not every one of those players coming up, but even if they also said, Hey, come July, are we going to make some moves? They have plenty. They have more ammo than anybody. 
to make moves. They also have, they've spent almost nothing on this team. So they should have payroll room as well. You put all that together. And I do think that they could be an 88, 87, you know, win 86 win team. If it all breaks right. And then the question is, is that going to be enough to get you into the postseason? Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't, but it puts you in that contention in that window where, and again, the key thing for them is it's another step towards where they expect to be in 24 and 25. I will say one reason to be encouraged for the Orioles is they're off to this really good start. And a lot of their best players have not rounded into form yet. Cedric Mullins is hitting 243. Gunnar Henderson's only hit batting a buck 83. He's going through his adjustment period. Ryan Mountcastle's hitting for power, but 213 with a 234 on base. Like these guys are better than this. They will get better over the course of the year. And your point about trading the prospects they have in AAA to go get some help, particularly on the starting rotation, I think that's actually going to be a really interesting litmus test for Michael Elias, this front office regime, and ownership. That was something they needed to do going into this year, and they didn't do it. I'm going to be curious to see if they have the gumption, if you will, to pull the trigger and trade some of this middle infield depth they have to go get a starter or two who can help them survive a full season They've had opportunities to do it before times they should have done it and they didn't do it. We talked about last trade deadline. They went the other direction coming into this year. It was clear they needed to do it. They didn't. I think this will be really interesting to see this trade deadline. If they're where we think they will be given all those reinforcements they have are mostly on the offensive side and they have excess guys they can trade who are really good and have trade value. They should make a deal or two. And if they don't, I think that's going to speak to a flaw in the system that they're operating under. What the system or in the ownership? I, I would say they're one of the same. The ownership creates the, uh, the structure of the organization and what they can and can't do. And I think if, if it could come both ways, if it's ownership saying, no, don't do it. Or if ownership says, okay, but the front office is hesitant to pull the trigger and shows they can't quite flip into contention mode for rebuild mode. Either or could be concerning. I think regardless of the reason, if they don't do it, it will be a red flag for their rebuild moving forward. But it'll be interesting to see. That's a lot of those. Again, there's a lot already happened in the major leagues. We'll have, we'll be talking about it all through the year. We're going to be diving into it at baseballamerica.com as we always do for Kyle. I'm JJ. So long, everybody. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.